Let's bow our heads together and let's have a season of prayer before we get into our study this morning. So I invite you uh, to bow your heads and hearts with me now. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and worship together and sing praises to thy name, uh, to learn from your holy word together. And uh, when we open thy word, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be with us and give us discernment, help us to understand the truth, uh, to seek for truth, and to have the Spirit teach us not only what is truth, but uh, to to cultivate within us a love for it, and so that we may uh, share this beautiful, beautiful message of the gospel and salvation with those around us, especially our families. Father, I pray that uh, you will be with us this entire Sabbath day, but especially now as we come together and look at uh, the Bible, and we're studying about sin. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to to look at ourselves honestly and uh, to see what our true condition is. You know, we can fool others, uh, but we cannot fool thee. And in order to be saved, we need to be undefiled and clean. Uh, we thank you for Jesus who has made that possible. We pray that you will forgive us our sins. We claim the blood that he shed there at Calvary. And we pray that we may learn by his example how to live a righteous life and bring glory to thy name. Father, be with those who couldn't be with us today. Be with those who are sick and ill. And I pray that you will heal them. And may they have a, a tremendous testimony of your your grace uh, towards them. Please give me the words to speak today. For I speak uh, in testimony to your loving kindness and mercy. I pray this in Jesus' blessed name. For he is worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, before I begin uh, into uh, today's study, uh, I want to make it clear that in this series that I entitled The Sin Issue, I've primarily been focusing on uh, what that means to each of us as individuals. Okay, uh, There are results of sin that involve more than the individual, and I'll address that um, coming up shortly, really, in, in a future studies, though we got a glimpse of it in our previous study. My point is uh, that sin doesn't just affect us as individuals, and God doesn't just deal with it uh, at an individual level, though he does indeed do that, you know, because he is a personal God, and he loves us in a personal way. I mean, we, we have seen how one man's sin, you'll recall this, one man's sin, Achan, affected all of Israel, and it caused the death of others, including his entire family. So there is a corporate accountability that is involved, and I'll address that subject a little bit later. And, uh, and hopefully we'll then understand why, you know, God dealt with evil men, um, with a worldwide flood, for example, or why he had Israel uh, destroy the Amalekites, you know, from, from the face of the earth, and, uh, and maybe also why there will be a final destruction of all the wicked. We will begin to, to understand that. It'll, it'll make it a little bit more clear to us. 
And it'll also make it easier to understand, I think, um, why it's necessary that we remove ourselves uh, from fallen organizations and, and fallen churches and come into the fold of God, who is the pillar and ground of truth. And so, friends, I mean, I mean, that's what the three angels' messages is really about, isn't it? It is the last separating call for humanity to come out of the devil's church corporate into God's church corporate. And uh, I'll explain all that in that, that uh, future study. And uh, friends, you don't want to miss that study because I think it will help. It'll be like a, a key unlocking uh, some of the questions that people have concerning why do, God does some of the uh, uh, some of the things that He does uh, when He passes judgment. Um, but dealing with the sin issue uh, at an individual level um, has to happen before it can be dealt with effectively at a corporate level by individuals, by a group such as a church. Of course, I mean, God can step in and supernaturally deal with the issue without any help from us created beings, which he has done uh, on occasion. As my old coaches used to pound into our heads at practice, we, we need to get the fundamentals down first, and that will help us to handle the bigger issues that come up. So you could describe, I guess, maybe what uh, I've shared in this series as the fundamentals of the sin issue, and uh, those will help us understand the bigger issues of why God dealt with the sins of peoples and nations and, and organizations like he has. And I'll tell you, friends, our God is a very loving and merciful God. He's very loving and merciful, uh, but there is a time limit to his mercy, <laughs> and so we'll, we'll come to see that. Uh, so today's question that I have for you is this, and it is, the, in fact, the title of this particular study, and it is, Do You Hate Sin? Do you hate sin? Now, that's a thought question, and you might not uh, want to answer too quickly, at least not until you hear what I have to say, or more importantly, what God has to say about it. Uh, and you're probably thinking, well, Pastor Joel... Of course I hate sin. And that would be the normal answer for uh, a Christian to give, wouldn't it? But do you really hate sin? You know, I mean, I'm, let's take some time and think about that. Do you really hate sin? Well, whether or not you're committing sin will give you the answer to the question. And most Christians will readily admit that they sin every day. So, you know, there you go, <laughs> right? The proof is in the pudding, as my mother used to say. Now, I want to share something with you uh, this morning uh, while, we're t while uh, uh, we are together. Um, I want to share something with you that's very practical when it comes to our battle with sin. Uh, it's not some, you know, speculation or, or an abstract theory but something we can actually use to help us become more like Jesus and thus be ready to meet him in peace when he comes. And isn't that what we all want? Amen? We want to be ready to meet Jesus when he comes in the clouds, don't we? Now you've heard me uh, say this before, 
but having a knowledge of the truth, friends, uh, it's not enough. If we're not able to put that truth that we know into practice in our daily lives, it can actually be detrimental to us. Because the devil can trick us, you see. He can trick us into believing that truth is really all we need. And so we become satisfied with just knowing what the truth is. And we think we're okay. Now, don't get me wrong. Truth is important. It's very, very important. But if we don't love it, we won't obey it from our heart. And without heart obedience, uh, we will never form a righteous character that can enter the gates of heaven, friends. Remember what the Apostle Paul told us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verses 10 and 11 he said, Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. They didn't love the truth. Now, they had the truth. They had the knowledge, but they didn't love it. And he says in verse 11, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Those that don't have a love of truth will end up believing the devil's big lie. And that's what it's talking about there. That's what Paul was saying. They'll think that even though they're having pleasure in unrighteousness, which John tells us in 1 John 5.17, that's sin, of course, unrighteousness. They'll believe that they are saved while they are engaged in it. And that sets them up for the final big lie. The final big lie is the impersonation of Jesus by Satan himself. And so they'll fall for that big lie, the big lie, and friends, they'll be lost forever. And so it takes more than knowledge. It takes a love for that truth that God has shared with us. Let me share something with you. It's from The Desire of Ages, page 668. It says, All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. The will refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing His service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, notice what, what it says here, sin will become hateful to us. And so, we find here some practical information, don't we, that we can use to, to our benefit. If we want to have continual obedience from the heart, then sin must become hateful to us. And for sin to become hateful to us, we must consent to have our hearts and minds conformed to the will of God. And when that happens our highest delight will be in service to our master. And if that's not the case in our lives, friends, then we need to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith, as Paul says. Because there's something wrong with our profession. If we're not experiencing that, there is something wrong with our profession. You see, 
false obedience was the problem the Jews had. They thought outward compliance to God's requirements uh, was all that was necessary. Just having that knowledge and that outward compliance. And they could have, they could have hatred for others in their hearts. This is what they believed. They could hate others and still be right with God. Still be okay with God. And I've known many professed Christians over the years that have had that same mistaken idea. In fact, I had it myself for a time. And I can tell you, friends, from personal experience, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We can never be like this and be ready to go to heaven. The Jews thought they were obeying God at the same time that they were plotting to kill him. Think about that. Think about that. And that's a warning for us. That's a danger that faces every one of us. We could fall into that same kind of thinking, that same kind of trap. In John 7 and verse 19, Jesus said to them, Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keepeth the law. Why go ye about to kill me? And aren't those that think they're saved while committing sin actually doing the same thing that the Jews were doing? Yes. <laughs> We've got to love the truth, friends, and obey it from the heart if we would be true disciples of Jesus Christ. Here's uh, another quote I'll share with you. It's from the Signs of the Times. The law of God, if observed with heart obedience, would have produced altogether a different influence. But vain glory, selfishness, and oppression marked the character of the Jews. They were proudly displaying their ceremonies before the very face of Christ, who was the foundation and center of the whole Jewish economy. While they rejected the antitype of all their types, the substance of all their shadows. They were so blinded by Satan that they knew not the time of their visitation. Did you catch that? They were so blinded by Satan that they knew not the time of their visitation. And God declared, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. And friends, we will destroy ourselves also unless we get this right. Our time of visitation is while the grace of God is offered and while the Holy Spirit is calling to repentance. And if we're not aware of this, we'll end up not knowing the time of our visitation, just like the Jews didn't know the time of theirs. The Bible makes it very clear that God's desire for you and me, friends, is that we have victory over sin. And once we have victory over sin, that we have victory over the temptation to sin, so we don't continue to sin and repent and sin and repent the rest of our lives, which will lead us to be eternally lost. Now I know that uh, there are many professed Christians today who would not agree with what I just said because they don't believe it's possible to stop sinning. They don't believe we can have continual obedience. And they believe this mainly because the devil has convinced them that it's not possible. And that convincing comes through religious leaders because it's not found in the Bible, friends. The Bible doesn't teach that. They have, what they've done, 
they have relegated their own responsibility to fallible men just like themselves because they assume ministers, you know, of course, have a, a closer connection with God than they do and a better education in the scriptures, which could be true, but that's not an excuse uh, because they should have, <laughs> right? Uh, but friends, we're living in a day when that no longer is the case either, unfortunately. Some of the things I hear from the pulpits is astounding and, uh, and straight from hell. It's not from the Bible. It's not from God. Yet mil millions of people around the world soak it all up and, and think that their standing with God is okay. I'll tell you, deception and delusion is an amazing thing to witness. It's incredible. Now, when the Bible speaks of being victorious and overcoming, isn't it implying there's power available to stop sinning? Well, absolutely. You know, God doesn't ask us to do something without providing the means to accomplish it. That would be awful cruel, wouldn't it? That would be awful cruel. Now, a good example of this is when Jesus, remember, he told the woman that was caught in adultery there in John chapter 8, he said, go and sin no more. Now, if it was impossible for us to stop sinning, to sin no more, that'd be awful cruel for Jesus to tell her to do that. Isn't that true? Jesus wouldn't have given the command without also giving her the power to accomplish it. Another example of this is when Jesus, you remember, he healed the, the lame man there by the pool of Bethesda. And then later on when he saw this man in the temple, he said to him, it's there in John 5 verse 14, he said, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come unto thee. The fact is that most Christians today have been duped into believing that sin is an unavoidable human experience that can't be escaped. That sin is just something we have to do because we're born with a sinful nature. The idea that a, a person can't stop sinning and therefore God has to save them while they do it, well, it's the first and biggest lie the devil ever told to a human being. And he's been teaching that same lie ever since. Ever since the devil convinced Eve she could disobey God and still have life, he's been working to convince her descendants, that's you and me, that they have no choice but to sin. That because they have a fallen human nature, sin is just something everybody does and will continue to do, well, until Jesus comes and he can wave a magic wand and miraculously change us. I had the local Adventist pastor, this is years ago, uh, insist that this was the case. That we will sin until Jesus comes. And he insisted that in front of a whole Bible study. In fact, he eventually he got up and left after I asked him to explain a few scriptures. While I was a, a student uh, in pastor training, uh, I challenged the teacher on the same issue. He was trying to teach that we would sin until Jesus uh, returned and changed us. And I asked him to explain uh, scriptures. Scriptures like these. Matthew 5 verse 48. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. 
How is it how is it possible for us to be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect? What is that talking about? He had a hard time explaining that. John 8 verse 11. This is a, the, the woman again. Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Why would he tell her to do that if it was an impossible thing to do? This one was a real, a real killer for him to explain. Hebrews 10 verses 26 and 27. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Yeah, explain that one. First John 5 verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. And then, of course, you know, I could go on and on and on, but Revelation twenty two fourteen. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Now that's just a scratch in the surface, you see. The Great Controversy, page 540. We read, in order to inherit all things, we must resist and overcome sin. So I shared these things, asked him to explain him, and the teacher, you know what his response was? He literally bawled me out to my face in front of the entire class. Didn't dissuade me any. He just completely lost control. But I persisted to stand on the scriptures. And just like the, the pastor, he too walked out of the room. And in fact, he never returned. He left the whole program. Just kept on walking. And uh, I heard later on that that teacher died of cancer, which was sad. And I, and I sure hope he was brought to the truth and that we will all get to see him uh, in the kingdom. But friends, I'll tell you something, something that's true about what they're saying. It's true that there will be many people who will sin until Jesus comes, but every one of them will be lost for all eternity. So we need to realize that Satan is the master of deception. And he has tricked people into thinking uh, that as long as they're trying, that's all that really matters. Well, that isn't all that really matters. It is important that we try, friends. Don't get me wrong. But that's not, what, that's not all that really matters. As, you know, as long as they ask for forgiveness after they sin, everything's just fine. And they continue to do this and think that this kind of vicious cycle is acceptable to God. Well, friends, that's, that's a, a heretical teaching uh, from the Catholic Church. It's not based upon Bible truth. Who, who could ever have any happiness, true happiness, true joy, with a system of worship like that? No victory? No victory possible over bad habits? It's a sad case. But, you know, come on, they say. Everyone sins. Have you ever run into this? Everyone sins. And surely God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Have you heard that one before? No one's perfect. After all, isn't that why Jesus died? To make up for my deficiencies? Anyway, we have an advocate with the Father, right? And, and if we sin, all we have to do is ask and He'll forgive us. And I'm doing the best that I can. Well, friends, 
as we started the, the study in this series, The Sin Issue, we looked at sin and we understand that we can never of ourselves hit the mark of God. We can never hit it. And so, you know, you can do the best you can, but the best you can do is not good enough. It's not going to get you there. It's not going to hit that mark. You need something outside of yourself that will help you to hit the mark. But because there's an element of truth to, to, to some of these things, people don't see the necessity or the need to truly overcome sin, to truly deal with it as God wants us to deal with it. And so when members of a church, they hear these kinds of comments, you know, from their leaders, from the pulpits, and they read them in, in you know, church publications, is it any wonder they've come to the conclusion that overcoming is, is maybe nothing more than, well, just a, a cliché? You know, a cliché that means, you know, do the, be- the best that you can, but don't worry about it that much. Jesus loves you. As some have said to me, you know, before, sloppy agape. Yeah, Jesus knows. He he knows that you can't do it and he overlooks those things. God winks at that. I'll tell you something, friends. If we don't believe we can stop sinning, I'll tell you this, the devil will make sure that we don't. And if you don't have the faith to believe what God says, then his word will not come to pass in your life. That's a fact. And I'll tell you something else. If people that think this way don't awake out of their Laodicean type slumber, if they don't wake up really soon, they're all going to wake up too late if they wake up at all. There's only one message that will wake them up, friends. We're living in a time of that message. It's the loud cry of the third angel. We're getting there. We're almost there. We're on the brink of it. The loud cry is the last message and the only message that's going to wake some of these people up. But most are afraid to give it. Most are asleep. Are you asleep? I hope that you're not asleep. Are you awake? Well, if you're awake, then you're the one that has the duty to proclaim that message to people who are asleep. The ones that are sleeping soundly in the pew. And I'll get to that in a later study. And I'll share some of the things with you on on how to uh, give a message, how to do it, how God lays it out that we're to to wake people up and to rid the church of sin. Problem is, most people don't even uh, know what it is, what sin is. They don't even know what the loud cry is. And if they do, they don't think it's time yet. Or they think it applies to everyone except the ones that belong to their church. You know, friends, thousands of Adventists, this is just this is just a sad thing to see. There are thousands of Adventists all around the world that are waiting for the Sunday law to happen before they do anything at all. And I'll tell you that for the vast majority of those people, it'll be too late to say a thing to anyone about sin. If you're waiting for the Sunday law to come before you do anything, it's going to be too late for you. You may just get sucked right into it. You know, 
this deception the devil's going to bring. The Bible says, you realize, the Bible says that it will be so great a deception that it will almost deceive the very elect. Now don't get sucked into believing that you're the very elect. That makes you feel assured then, see. Oh, I'm not going to be deceived because I'm the very elect. But friends, if you're not overcoming sin, you aren't the very elect. I'll tell you that right now. And neither am I. We have time, by God's mercy, we have time right now to get right. To be prepared for that. Now, it's not my intention to study the loud cry at this time. But here's what it is in a nutshell. Those of you who may not know. And then you can study it out for yourselves when you have the time. The loud cry is the third angel's message of Revelation 14, 9 through 12, and the fourth angel's message of Revelation 18, 1 through 5 combined. You can read about that in early writings, page 277. And here's what it is. In a nutshell now, it's a call to stop sinning by actually keeping the commandments and have the faith of Jesus like the third angel's message says. And to separate from those who don't or teach that you can't or who teach that one is in a saved condition even while they, are, uh, uh, they have ongoing sin in their life, you know, just like the fourth angel says. And so, you know, I don't know how to make it any really simpler than that. But like I, I said, study it out on your own. But that's it in a, a really, really fine nutshell, what the loud cry is. That's what it is at its core. Stop sinning and stay away from those who won't, unless that is, uh, you have the opportunity to share this truth with them so they can make an intelligent decision uh, to follow God and inspired counsel. You see, continual obedience, <laughs> bless you. Thank you. <laughs> continual obedience is the goal. And it's achievable to all who will allow Jesus to live within their heart and in their minds. If we are crucified with Christ, I mean, think of it this way. If we're crucified with Christ, as the Apostle Paul said that he was, then we won't continue to sin because, friends, think about this, dead people can't sin. Right? They can't do anything. So if self is dead and Jesus lives within, then continual loving obedience is going to be the result. Because that's what Jesus does. See? And there's no reason for any Christian to, to come to the conclusion then that sin is unavoidable. We know good and well that the, the basis of the great controversy between Christ and Satan is all about whether or not the law of God can be kept by fallen human beings. You know, you can read all about that in Genesis 3 and Revelation 12 and uh, the book The Great Controversy, page 582, sums it up. But not only do most professed Christians not understand this, there's probably not one in ten who can even tell you what sin is. And if they don't know what sin is and that there's power available to stop sinning, how are they ever going to have victory over it? 
And as you've heard before, that that was uh, that is what uh, uh, motivated me. Holy Spirit pushed me that to uh, do this series, the sin issue. We need to understand what it is, fully understand what it is, uh, before we can uh, we can make the take these steps uh, to become overcomers. Um, main reason people don't understand what, what sin is uh, is because they're not studying as though their eternal life depended on it. And why aren't they studying as though their eternal life depended upon it? Because they've been taught and are convinced that they are saved in sin. Salvation in sin is a very comforting doctrine, isn't it, to those that believe it? But the fact is that it will cost them their eternal life because it's a lie of the devil. And by the way, since the great controversy is all about whether or not human beings with a fallen sinful nature can keep the Ten Commandments, don't you think it's extremely important to understand that Jesus also had a fallen sinful human nature? Let me share a couple of statements about this with you. Two of many. Two of many. I'll tell you a book that's out of print. Uh, the Word Made Flesh. It's been out of print for a long time. In fact, the author has been dead for a number of years. Fantastic book uh, about this subject, The Humanity of Christ. But if you can get a copy of that, friends, man, I encourage you to get a copy of that book. But let me share a couple statements with you about this. This first one's from Review and Herald, December 15, 1896. And speaking of Jesus, his humanity. She says, Clad in the vestments of humanity, the Son of God came down to the level of those he wished to save. In him was no guile or sinfulness, he was ever pure and undefiled, yet he took upon him our sinful nature. And one more, which, like I said, there are many, many more like this. This is from the devotional, in fact. It's called God's Amazing Grace, page 23. What love! What amazing condescension! The king of glory proposes to humble himself to fallen humanity. He would place his feet in Adam's steps. He would take man's fallen nature and engage to cope with the strong foe who triumphed over Adam. Now, friends, you can try to twist these statements to, to say something different if you, if you want. Or you can try to put a spin on the the prophet's plain words, as many try to do, but if we take God at his word, we won't do that, will we? Instead, we will believe what has been clearly stated, that Jesus came down to our level by taking our fallen flesh. And if you believe otherwise, if you believe otherwise, you'll come to the conclusion that Jesus could live a life of victory over sin, but you cannot. Because, see, he was different than we are. Completely different. Now there are differences because he was divinity and humanity combined. <laughs> you see. But his humanity was like ours. And that should give us hope. That's what it was all about. And you know the Bible teaches the same thing as the two quotes I just read to you. 
let me give you some Bible texts. Just so you know, there are two to three witnesses on the matter, and it's not my opinion. Okay? Think about this. The first one's in Genesis 5 and verse 1. Genesis 5 and verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Now that's pretty plain, isn't it? Is God fallen or unfallen? Well, he's unfallen, right? And so was Adam. Adam was created in an unfallen condition until he sinned. Now go to Romans 8 and verse 3, and let's compare what Paul said with what Moses just said there in Genesis 5. Romans 8 and verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son, how did he send him? In the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. And when you read the word flesh in the Bible, friends, it always refers to fallen flesh. Really with no exceptions, except for the few times it speaks about animal flesh. But here, in Romans 8.3, Paul uses the Greek word sarks. He uses it, and it means fallen human nature with all its carnal hereditary tendencies. That's what it means. In fact, if you go to verse 6 there of Romans 8, when Paul says carnally minded, the same Greek word sarks is used for the translation carnally, to be carnally minded. And in fact, that's the difference, isn't it? We've studied in a series here that sin begins in the mind. So that's this, this is why Paul tells us that we need a mind like that of Christ, see? Not one that's controlled by our carnal nature, but one that is has a higher power than that, you see. And so when Paul says that Jesus came in the likeness of of sinful flesh and condemned sin in fallen flesh, that means that he lived life without sinning while being alive in sinful flesh. And that's exactly what he expects us to do. And that's possible for everyone who has partaken of his divine nature. See, it's the only way that it is possible. Don't get confused. You can't do it yourself of your own human nature. And so, we read in Genesis that Moses said Adam was created in the likeness of God. And that would be unfallen, right? The likeness of God. And Paul says Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, or fallen flesh. So now you have to admit, friends, that Adam and Jesus were different, right? The words, in the likeness of God and in the likeness of sinful flesh, they're not the same. The way Adam and Jesus came into the world was different. And I hope you see that because it will make a big difference in the way that we live the Christian life and whether or not we hate sin and have victory over it in, uh, in our lives. Let's go to another one. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 14 to 18. 
For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now, I've, I've done this before. I've been teaching this before. And I've asked people, why didn't, it, why didn't uh, Paul there say, but he took on him the seed of Adam? Well, we just read about that. There were differences, weren't there? But he says he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, we covered about uh, study about temptation, didn't we? He himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to secure or help them that are tempted. Now tell me, friends, did Abraham have fallen flesh? Absolutely he did. Did Abraham's descendants have fallen flesh? Absolutely. So when the Bible says Jesus was made like unto his brethren, it means that he was made like you and me. And he was made like you and me so he could reconcile us back to God when he took our place on the cross there at Calvary. Notice this. It's from the book Selected Messages of Volume 3, uh, page 140. The Lord Jesus came to our world not to reveal what a God could do, but what a man could do through faith in God's power to help in every emergency. Man is, through faith, to be a partaker in the divine nature and to overcome every temptation wherewith wherewith he is beset. The Lord now demands that every son and daughter of Adam, through faith in Jesus Christ, serve him in human nature, which we now have. You know, about the turn of the century in the 19, early 1900s, there was a movement called the Holy Flesh Movement. And they were saying, oh yeah, God will come in. He doesn't just change your heart. He changes you entirely to where you cannot sin anymore. And so she says, in human nature, which we now have. And this is what she's talking about. Fallen human nature. So, friends, wouldn't you agree that this is a wonderful and necessary truth to understand? You know, some of you may not know the history of Advent movement stuff, but uh, um, the Omega apostasy in these last days that we've been warned would come uh, is spoken of. We're warned about it. it it's the pan pantheistic uh, theory that Dr. Uh, Kellogg began to teach and write about in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. He wrote a book called The Living Temple that dealt with that. But it's the same lie, friends, that the devil told Eve. That God dwells in everything, so of course then he would also dwell in the sinner. So you can be a Christian, 
you see, and still sin because God dwells in you no matter what your profession is. He's going to be dwelling in you. Even the pagans, God is dwelling in pagans and unbelievers. And here's the sad part. The omega of apostasy that inspiration warned us about over 100 years ago uh, has now become the teaching of the very organization that was raised up in these last days to proclaim the true plan of salvation, which is victory over sin. Oh, how the devil must gloat. Let me share this with you. It's from Sermons and Talks, Volume 1, page 343. In Living Temple, the assertion is made that God is in the flower, in the leaf, in the sinner. But God does not live in the sinner. The Word declares that He abides only in the hearts of those who love Him and do righteousness. God does not abide in the heart of the sinner. It is the enemy who abides there. Let that sink in a little bit. You know, John John actually told us about this. In 1 John chapter 3, let's go there. Because John talked about this. 1 John 3, verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. Oh, you you mean we're not God's children when we sin? Think about that. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he's born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Friends, if Jesus didn't have a nature like fallen humanity, then we can never hope to have victory and perfection of character in this life. And that's precisely why many have come to the conclusion that they're going to sin until Jesus comes. If Jesus had to have, think of this, if Jesus had to have an unfallen human nature in order to be successful in his battle with temptation, then how in the world can we ever hope to have it with a fallen nature and a multitude of, of sins and you know, cultivated sins that we have? I want to tell you, friends, that on the human side, Jesus had no advantage over us. He lived life the way we have to live it, in total submission to the power outside of ourselves, that power of the Holy Spirit, that power of God. Just as He relied upon His Father, so we must rely upon our Father as well, our Father in Heaven. And as I've studied the subject here of victory over sin and and having the power to not yield to temptation, I've discovered that there's only one way to have it. It's really rather simple. It appears to be simple, although the battle with self is the hardest battle that's ever fought. 
but there's only one way to have it. Listen to this. It's from the book Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery, and Divorce, page 135. Now listen carefully to this. You cannot turn from sin until you hate sin and love purity and truth and righteousness. And there it is. It sounds kind of simple, doesn't it? You cannot turn from sin until you hate sin and love purity and truth and righteousness. And friends, there's only one way to learn to hate sin, and that's to understand something about what it cost uh, Jesus Christ to save us. From the Signs of the Times, July 6, 1888. As he looks to the cross, that's speaking of the transgressor, a sinner, as he looks to the cross, he will hate sin, for he will understand that it was sin that rejected, reproached, denied, scourged, and crucified the majesty of heaven. We have to look to the cross and see what it cost. This one from the Bible Echo, November 1, 1893. <clears throat> he who would be saved must keep his eye on Jesus. By beholding Christ, he will learn to hate sin. How many have heard me say, keep looking up? I end notes with it. I, I end conversations with it. Keep looking up. Why do I say that? Why do you think I would say, keep looking up? So you can watch where you're going? <laughs> Partly, right? Spiritually speaking. I say it, friends, because by beholding Christ, we can become like Him in character. And that pleases our Father in Heaven. Keep looking up. Here's one more. Medical Missionary, October 1, 1893. We are to keep Christ as our pattern ever in view, and by contemplating Him, we become transformed in character. So here... We have the divine blueprint for success in uh, uh, our warfare against sin and in, in, in overcoming sin. First, the only way to stop sinning, we have to hate it. We have to hate it first. Number two, the only way to hate sin is to understand what it, what it did to Jesus, what it cost, and what it did to Christ. And three, if we would continue to hate sin and be saved at last... We must keep our eye on Jesus, for by beholding Him, we become changed into His likeness. You see, friends, everything centers in Christ. Everything centers in Christ. Ellen White says, the humanity of Jesus is everything to us. That's an incredible statement. And it's so true. Jesus himself said, without me, you can do nothing. The Bible says Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12, verse 2. That means he's the one that gets us started on the straight and narrow way you know, to the kingdom of God. 
And he's the one that will keep us from falling off that path. There will never be a time during this life when we will not have to draw off of Christ's righteousness. Never. He doesn't justify us, then kick us out to go it alone. You know, that's what deists think. He doesn't do that. But after we come, we continue to cling to Him and partake of His divine nature every step of the way. It's the only way that we will be able to overcome temptation and sin. And unless we abide in Christ all the time, we're going to fall. We're going to come short of that mark of God because we're trying to do it ourselves. In fact, our sinful nature kind of, it's the default, isn't it? It defaults to sin automatically. And if not in outward acts, uh, it will in our heart and in our mind, won't it? And as Jesus washed away our sins when we first came to Him, so He will keep us covered with His robe of, of righteousness. So long, friends, as we cooperate with Him by obeying His Word. And like I said, though, obedience doesn't earn us anything because salvation is a free gift. And you can't purchase a free gift. But obedience does show who we, or can show, who we belong to. Remember Jesus said there, what was it, Matthew 7, He said, you shall know them by their fruits. And Paul said, we were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So we, we must understand that obedience is important in the development of character, but we should never get the idea that we're saved by what we do. Creature merit earns us nothing. But obedience, true obedience from the heart, because we love the truth and we love God who is the truth, obedience then is the fruit of our faith. Well, someone might say, that's all well and good when it comes to justification, which is simply forgiveness. But once we've been forgiven, there's something for us to do. Well, I, I would agree with that to a point, but whatever it is we have to do still doesn't save us. It's just the outward fruit of our, our faith. There will never come a time when salvation stops being a free gift, friends. Even while we're in the vast ages of eternity in heaven. It's because of the grace of God that we're there. And this free gift is a gift all the way through the salvation process as well, which includes both justification and sanctification. Sanctification, friends, simply is holiness. And, and holiness, we're told in the Desire of Ages, page 556, is wholeness for God. And holiness is not something we can work up ourselves. It comes by faith in Christ, the same as forgiveness does. In Acts 26 and verse 18... Paul says, we are sanctified by faith. And so we need both forgiveness and holiness, don't we? And Christ gives them free of charge to all who have faith in Him and commits their life to Him. With justification, we accept the forgiveness that Christ offers. And with sanctification, we cooperate with God in our own salvation. But the forgiveness and the holiness belong to Jesus. We access them by faith. Let me share this with you. It's from God's Amazing Grace, page 319. 
Man can accomplish nothing without God, and God has arranged his plan so as to accomplish nothing in the restoration of the human race without the cooperation of the human with the divine. The part man is required to sustain is immeasurably small, yet in the plan of God it is just that part that is needed to make the work a success. We have to choose, see? That's our part to play. We have to choose. The great change that is seen in the life of a sinner after conversion is not brought about by any human goodness. Even our repentance comes from Jesus. Now, is that clear enough? After conversion, the process of sanctification begins, and even that is not brought about by any human goodness. So the whole process from beginning to end is brought about by God's amazing grace. And I hope you can say amen to that, friends. Well, let's look quickly now at several texts uh, of Scripture to learn something about one particular attribute of our loving Savior that must also be ours if we would win heaven at last, friends, and is the topic of this study. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Let's look at verses 8 and 9, and I'll... uh, I'll kind of speed it up a little bit here. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. I used to ask my my daughter when she was young, What does righteousness mean? And she says, Right doing. And that's what it means. It means right doing. So because Jesus loved righteousness and hated iniquity is the reason he was anointed to be our Savior. And if we truly belong to him, we will love doing what's right and hate sin just as he does. Psalms 97 and verse 10. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. And if we hate evil, what will the Lord do? Well, he goes on to tell us. He preserveth the souls of his saints... He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. So ye that love the Lord hate evil. And that's what's going to become more and more important. Uh, It's going to become more important, let me tell you, as we near the end of time uh, for this wicked world. Psalms 119, verse 163. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. And here we see that to love God's law is to hate sin. Now, all of you are familiar with this, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. My wife was speaking to me about something like that uh, earlier today. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. God hates all these things, but do we? That's the question, isn't it? And if we love God, we'll not be found doing any of these things. And we could spend a long time discussing those seven hated things because there's a lot there to think about, isn't there? Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth. That means a mouth that 
that uh, just speaks whatever it wants to. It's not governed. So he says, In the froward mouth do I hate. Amos chapter 5, verse 15. Hate the evil and love the good. Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Uh, that means hypocrisy or um, deceit. Let love be without hypocrisy or deceit. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. And according to 1 John 4, 8, the scriptures testify that God is love. Right? We read that all the time. God is love. And if this is true, how can both love and hate proceed from the same divine being without canceling themselves out. God becomes impotent, becomes neutral. He's neutralized, if that's the case. Love and hate are total and complete opposites, friends. And if God is love, well, then he has to hate sin in order to remain love. And if God didn't hate sin with a perfect hatred, he would cease to be love. To not hate sin is to love it and if you love it, you will do it. And if you do it, you will die. It's plain and simple. Notice this. Manuscript releases, volume 14, page 73. Always bear in mind the fact that there is one thing which God hates with a perfect hatred, and that is sin. So if sin is the one thing God hates with a perfect hatred, then sin is the one thing we must learn to hate as well. The question is, do we hate sin? I mean, do we really hate sin? And do we hate it enough to choose to accept God's help to quit sinning? And if we do, then that is evidence that we understand what sin did to Jesus and that we must keep our eye on Him in order to hate sin with a perfect hatred and continue to hate it. But if we don't hate sin, then that's evidence we need to understand better that uh, then we do uh, what our sins did to Jesus. We definitely need to keep our eye fixed on Him, don't we? Especially during these times of temptation. And as I close up, think of this. Think about this. If love and obedience to God's law are inseparable, because it is a transcript of His character, isn't it? If love and obedience to God's law are inseparable as the Lord declares, then hate and the transgression of God's law are also inseparable. In other words, just as it is impossible to fully love God without truly hating sin, so it is impossible to truly love sin without fully hating God. What a revelation that is when we begin to understand it. To think that we hate God when we sin ought to cause us to do some serious reflection, friends, about where we might be headed, don't you think? Now, friends, I want to think like Jesus. I want to mind like that of Christ. And I want to hate sin as He hates it. And keep this in mind. It's true that God hates sin. But He loves the sinner. And he wants to give them the power to render continual obedience to his holy law. He wants to help each one of us to do that, friends. 
Let's not hinder the process. What do you say? What do you say? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you for your law. We thank you that your very existence is love, that you are love, that you are a merciful and loving God. We're so very thankful for Jesus who came to this earth as a man to show us how to live, live a life that will bring glory, continual glory to thee. Lord, each and every one of us here, we have things and sins that we are dealing with, temptations that come upon us, and we need your help. It's the only way that we can be an overcomer. We pray that you forgive us where we have made wrong choices in the past. We pray that you will educate our conscience, that we may make righteous decisions that bring glory to thy name. We pray for your grace. And may we keep looking up and see Jesus so we may be transformed in heart and mind into his likeness. I pray in the name of Jesus who is so worthy. Amen.